0: Today we have a message from Dr. Anthony Silvestro from the Equip NorCal Fire. This is going to be on the importance of the book of Genesis. Hope you enjoy this. Welcome to the Rap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretations and applications. This is a ministry of striving for eternity. For more content, or to request a speaker or seminar for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. So this morning we're going to be talking about my favorite book of the Bible, Genesis, in a title called uh, Foundations. So as Pastor Steve said, I'm not a real doctor, I'm a dentist, so... (laughs) So I hear that all the time on the streets. <laughs> so I, uh, I've been a dentist for, for quite some time now, longer than I care to admit. Shows my age a little bit. I went to a small private school for, uh, for college where I was a double major in math and chemistry. So I've got some science background. And uh, as I said, I'm a practicing dentist right now. My wife, Julie, uh, who supports me wonderfully in both the office and in ministry. And then we have one son, Anthony III, who you've seen kicking a soccer ball probably last night. <laughs> So we're going to have a few screens here of some things, and I want you to think about an association for each one of these. Work. Clothes. Laws. Originally, everyone is made male or female. Biblical marriage. One man, one woman. Death is a result of sin. The concept of a week. God the creator. And this list can go on and on and on. I've got to spend all hour doing this. So what do all these biblical concepts have in common? Obviously, the foundations found in Genesis. So, we understand work. Now, sorry, work is not part of just the fall. (laughs) We were supposed to tend the garden, right? But what happened is work became laborious as a result of sin, and we see that in Genesis 3. Clothes, why do we wear them? And, And thankfully, we all wear them, right? Comes from Genesis. Laws. We see the first commands given to Adam in Genesis 2. Everyone being made male and female. Now look, I know that there are certain genetic mutations that happen today. Hermaphrodites and whatnot. But part of God's original creation was everyone made male and female. Biblical marriage. One man, one woman. We see this coming from Genesis 2. Where Eve was brought to Adam. Concept of a week. Have you thought about this? We understand astronomy where we get a day because of what? Not because of the sun, which was created day four. We get a day because of the earth's rotation on its axis, right? One rotation gives us 24 hours. We understand a month because of the cycle with the moon. We understand a year because that's the amount of time it takes for the earth to go around the sun. But where does a concept of a week come from? Genesis 1. It's the only place it comes from. See what I find ironic is that while the atheists are trying to take God out of everything and trying to remove everything they possibly can, I'm trying to figure out what they're going to do with the work week. Like are they going to shorten it to five? Are they going to? Because seven days only comes from the Bible. So they got some work to do if they're going to try to eradicate God out of everything. Animal sacrifice. Would you believe it had its start in the garden? And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, too. And then, obviously, God the Creator comes from Genesis. But today, we have a major problem in the church. Not your church, but most churches today. And what is this problem? It's the problem of, of us, and if we can do one thing today, Let's eradicate the term Bible story from our vocabulary. Let's erase that completely. And let's instead use Bible historical account or Bible history. Because that's what this is. It's history. Because when we use the term story today, what does that sound like? Fiction, fairy tale, fable, right? So, so that's the connotation today. We have to get away from the word story and use Bible historical accounts. And we see this especially in Sunday schools everywhere. We're using the term, the term story with children. And the thing is, is that children, especially if your kids go to public school, they're getting Bible stories in church, and then, then they're being taught the truth in school. That's what's happening. So we've got to be really careful with our language. And so we have something like this where we've all heard this story, right? So the princess kisses the frog, and the frog turns into a prince, and we all understand that to be a fairy tale. And this is the type of story or fairy tale that the Bible is being accused of giving, and we are unfortunately propagating at times with our language. Now one thing I think was really funny about this is that in the end, I, I would agree that this is a fairy tale, right? That that the frog turns into a prince and yet evolution teaches that amphibians turned into <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> So, but the whole point, we've got to teach Bible history accounts. And, and I hope we can gain an appreciation this morning that these are his, historical accounts that we see in Genesis and that we teach them as fact because we're going to find that this is the underpinning of the entire Bible. What we see happen in Genesis 1 through 3 leads to what we find through the restoration in the rest of the Bible. And so here's one great story. Historical account, Ah, I almost got you. <laughs> so Noah's Ark. Is, God describes the Ark in three verses here in the Bible. In uh, 614 through 616. Make yourself an Ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the Ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you should make it. The length of the Ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the Ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit... From above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, when we understand cubits, there's a standard cubit and there's a royal cubit. The standard cubit was around 18 inches per cubit, the royal cubit was somewhere around 21 to 23 inches. We're not really sure what it is. Basically, an ark is going to give you somewhere between 450 and 500 feet long. That's a massive ship. It's not this little thing, the little tugboat. In fact, if you go visit the Creation Museum from Answers in Genesis in Kentucky, you will see a ship that is 510 feet long that they built because they believe it was based off the Royal Cubit. So let me ask you then, when we walk through Sunday school or we walk through our, children, our, our Bible bookstores and we see kids' books on the flood in Noah's Ark, do we see pictures like this? Now, that does not look like a ship to me. (laughs) What about this one? Now, other than the cute pandas, who are my favorite animal, (laughs) does this look like anything? I mean, at least they've got a few splashes of waves, right? I mean, (laughs) something like a flood. But these don't accurately depict a Bible historical account. This makes it look like what? A fairy tale, a fictional story. Instead, we need to be showing what Noah's Ark probably looked like. A massive ship with actual dimensions that can handle waves up to 100 feet, according to research that was done about 20 years ago. And think about this. When the Bible, especially the book of Genesis, is questioned by people, it's usually going to be questioned why. Because of science, or some science out there. Right? That's, that's often the interplay that we see where I think that we gained a little bit of an appreciation yesterday, and and we're going to see that the rest of the morning today, that God and science are perfectly compatible. In fact, it goes even further than that because God created science. Why? I believe in large part because it's part of the dominion mandate. As we are to have dominion over his creation and understand his creation better, that he gave us science to help us do that. And yet what we're finding is that science is often put into this category that is against the Bible. And so when this is done, when people say that you can question the Bible because of some of the science out there, then they can also question many other things in the Bible, especially some things that we would hold very near and dear to our hearts. Things like the virgin birth. Things like bringing dead people back to life, which has happened to every single believer here today. How about walking on water, turning water into wine, or maybe even Jesus himself being raised from the dead? I mean, we as Christians believe some pretty crazy things. We believe in a talking donkey, an axe head that floats, right? That all seem to fly in the name of uh, against conventional science. But this creation versus evolution issue, which is really what undermines Genesis, and attempts to undermine the entire Bible. And I want you to think about this for a moment, why. So, Andrew, when he was speaking yesterday, he went over Romans 1, verses 18 to 22, and he said that everyone knows the true God exists by his creation. Wouldn't it make a lot of sense as to why the biggest attack on the church today would be evolution? Evolution? the very creation that testifies to his existence that nobody can deny is the one thing that is being attacked today. Well, what's interesting is that when we look at different issues within the church, we can have discussions about eschatology. I'm sure, not, I'm sure that not everybody here agrees on, on end times. I'm sure not everyone de, des, uh, agrees about certain other topics in the Bible, and we would still consider ourselves within an orthodoxy on some very minor topics. And people try to say this about creation evolution. But I would tell you that this debate is different, vastly different. And why is that? Because when we're talking about things like end times, what is each of our starting points? It's the Bible, right? We are starting with Scripture, the place we're supposed to start in any debate. But is that really the starting point for evolution? It's not. Because I would say this, if we look through the Bible, how do we get an age of the earth? Well, we get it by adding up genealogies. See, you thought when you read Genesis 5, it was like counting sheep to go to sleep, (laughs) right? And instead, no, God put Genesis 5 there for a reason, where so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and soon you're asleep. No, it's there for a reason. <laughs> and it's to show that they're, they're actually real people. And that we have a string of real people connecting Adam, the first man, all the way to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, to be the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And when we add up those genealogies and historical accounts, from Adam and Eve being created on the sixth, sixth day, all the way to Jesus, we get about 4,000 years. We know Jesus was about 2,000 years ago, hence we get about a 6,000 year age of the earth. That is our starting point. When we believe in evolution and millions of years, where does the millions of years come from? We're gonna dive into this here in a few minutes, and this is what I want you to think about here. Where does the millions to billions of years come from? Does it come from starting with scripture? Or does it come from somewhere else? See, when we talk to evolutionists, professing Christians who believe in evolution, they will do everything they can to try to reinterpret passages in the Bible to come up with their millions of years. But make no mistake about it, it was not their starting point. Their starting point is what secular science says, And they're trying to take that and impose it into the Bible. We have to be very clear on this distinction. We also see that in the Bible, ten times in the beginning of Genesis, God says he created everything after its own kind, to reproduce after its own kind. Does he ever say he takes a kind and changes it into another kind? No. No. So evolution, where is its starting point? Is it the Bible, or is it somewhere else? Right? So these are things, again, we've got to keep in mind here. And obviously, this is where the underpinnings come from, and, and what the resultant is, is that when our starting point is the Bible, we understand that we're not made after monkeys, or something like a monkey. We're actually created in the image of God, we share certain communicable attributes with God. And being created in the image of God, he is our absolute authority, and thus he can be our absolute authority on things like moral issues, which Andrew covered yesterday. One of the great apologetic arguments we can use. But if your starting point is evolution, that means you, at some point, came from something like a monkey, you know. It, as scientists would today say that we share a common ancestor with the monkey-like creature, which if you trace it back far enough in time, it brings us all the way back to something like pond scum that had no reason other than random chemical chance uh, reactions that did nothing but obey the laws of chemistry and physics to come together... And eventually create everything we see today. Where does morality come from? This was the point that Andrew was making yesterday. When when you mix the vinegar and baking soda, it just is. How does that all of a sudden translate into morality? And the thing is, is that when we talk about the law of Christ and his word, and we talk about the law of evolution, these are in direct opposition to one another. They cannot be amalgamated. Let me assure you, I tried for years (laughs) to try to amalgamate the two. They don't go together. So we have guys out there like atheist Lawrence Krauss. Atheist Lawrence Krauss, who is a physicist at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, then moved on to Arizona State, It got real famous down there. And one of the things secular scientists say is that through certain reactions, we can't get above iron on the periodic table of elements. So where did all these big-time heavy metals come from that we see out there today, of which some of which are in our bodies? That, That we couldn't exist without some of these heavier elements in us. And so what science says, some science says, is that you must have had stars that exploded... That were, cap- that were hot enough, capable of making these elements, threw them out in the universe, somehow some of them landed on earth, and that is what became part of us. So you got guys like Lawrence Krauss who says, well, we're just recycled stardust. Forget Jesus. He didn't die for us, stars did. Yep, exact quote, and if anybody wants to know where it is, I can email it to you. You'll, you'll listen to him say it. So in essence, we're just stardust bumping into stardust, if evolution's true. Pond, scum, dirt, I'm not sure which, but is there a problem if you have uh, dirt putting a hole in pond scum? All right, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but when we understand morality, why would murder be wrong? If evolution's true, if survival of the fittest is true. So why would murder be wrong? Why would abortion be wrong? Homosexuality, who cares? Right? Pornography, racism, all these things are fine without a moral standard. If our underpinnings are really just random chemical reactions in the ground, and we weren't designed by God, why does any of this stuff matter? Again, all stuff that Andrew covered yesterday, and these are the underpinnings. We see them in Genesis. Genesis. So let's understand Genesis and time a little bit better. When we take the Bible at its word, that this earth and the universe are only about 6,000 years old, and we divide the time up that we see in the 6,000 years, we see that we had creation, corruption, catastrophe, and confusion. So those of you familiar with Ken Ham and his seven seas of history will we'll recognize these. We see Christ in the cross, and then in the end we see Consummation. And we know that this period is a 6,000 year period. Genesis is about 2,000 years of that history. What we read in the beginning of Genesis, in the first 11 chapters, is a third of all Bible history. And the reality is, is God's plan of redemption, as I said earlier, is based on what happened in Genesis. Genesis is the key to understanding what we see in the rest of the Bible, going from a literal six-day creation to Adam and Eve, to the fall and the promise of a Savior. We see all of this in just the first three chapters. See, in the beginning, God created perfectly. Us being the pinnacle of his creation. I mean, think about this. Billions of trillions of stars that we know of today. That in Genesis, on on day four, he just says he made the sun, the moon, and the stars also. It's like an afterthought. And then he gets into the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the earth. And then he comes to the pinnacle of his creation, the crowning glory of his creation, human beings created in his image. And he did this perfectly. He did not design death in his original creation. Because what did he give for every one of us as food, including the animals? Fruits and seeds and plants, as we read in Genesis. And then what happens? Adam and Eve sin, through their sin, brings in death, disease, pain, suffering, thorns and thistles. All the bad things we see today are brought into creation. And then the rest of the Bible, we see the plan of redemption. So let's break this down a little bit further now. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17, we talked about laws starting in Genesis, and this is where it starts. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So who did God speak to here? Adam. Eve wasn't created yet. What would happen to him if he ate of the tree? He would die. Okay, we're going to come up to this in just a moment now. So now we get to the fall. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, obviously, I skipped over a few verses here, right? What happened next after that command is God said that Adam needed a helper. Rather than just create Eve right away, what did he do? He paraded the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth, all in front of Adam for him to name one after another as they walked past him. Beasts of the earth included monkeys and chimpanzees, and apes, none of which were a suitable helper for him. So God showed Adam none of them were suitable helpers. And then he created Eve, brought him together into marriage. And there's one other verse I'm going to leave out here in just a moment, or, and I'll bring up in just a moment. So the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? We're not sure where Adam is right at this moment. He's probably right next to her. We'll find out a couple verses later that he was certainly there to take the fruit from her and not throw it away, but take another bite himself. So we're not sure when he arrived on the scene. He was probably there the entire time, but we can't be dogmatic about this. But I want you to notice something here. The serpent's challenge was, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's wrong with this? Was that the command actually given? No. What I find so interesting about this verse, and I could talk for days about just Genesis 1 through 3, but what's so interesting about this verse is that think about when we listen to guys like Joel Osteen out there, or in your neck of the woods, Bill Johnson, right? who uses, because Joel doesn't actually open his Bible, I don't think I've ever seen that, right? (laughs) But, But Bill... Bill attempts to use scripture, and and they just change it just a little bit. And what does it do? It makes the whole thing wrong. Now, without being dogmatic here either, what exactly happened? Did Adam not teach his bride correctly? Did she just not listen correctly? We don't know. But something got lost here, right? Because in the very next verse... And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay. Did Eve get it right? No. So something's wrong here too. And just then, the serpent sees his opening. Right? She wasn't armed with scripture, with God's word there. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. At the end of Genesis 2, after the animals were paraded in front of Adam, and he names them, and then God puts him to sleep, creates Eve out of his rib, brings him to her as his wife— The last verse of Genesis 2, verse 25, says, and they were naked and not ashamed. And you're like, whoa, what's this verse doing in here, right? It just seems out of context. Until we read to the next chapter where it says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. Immediate spiritual death. Now, there's a lot of guys out there a lot of false teachers out there that would say that it ends right there, spiritual death. But if we read through Genesis 3, we get to Genesis three nineteen, as God is, is talking about the curse of creation, cursing the serpent above all else. He ends with this. He says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return, the promise of future physical death. So yesterday, when Both Andrew and Mark talked about God's mercy. And Andrew specifically talked about the mercy God gives us in every breath that we take. That's exactly what happened here in the garden. As R.C. Sproul says in his book, On the Holiness of God, could God have killed Adam and Eve right then and there? Sure. But he let them live another day and another day and another day as a result of his mercy. Same thing that we see today in the world. I'll also point out one other thing here. Works-based righteousness. Where did it start from? They sowed themselves fig leaves to cover it up. (laughs) Probably never saw that one before, right? What's interesting though is when we see this in Genesis one through three, in God's cursing creation from Genesis three seven through Genesis three nineteen, we see a little light that is inserted right in the center of it in Genesis three fifteen. And he says, This and I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent here, and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Who is God talking about here? Jesus, the Savior. The future Messiah. Take away from the sins of the world. We're going to get back to that in a moment. Genesis, while it's being taught as a fable by many people... We need to understand what the New Testament actually teaches about Genesis. See, every writer of the New Testament books, and all except three small New Testament books, gives a direct reference to the beginning of Genesis, assuming it is literal history. We see numerous accounts of the creation account, original sin, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, the flood, being mentioned throughout the New Testament as historical accounts in the Bible. One of these is a real important one. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. So it is written the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. We have Adam being linked to Christ. Adam has to be literal has to be literal so it's not just in the genealogies that we see this which is not only in genesis 5 but we also see it in two of the gospel accounts but we also see in both romans and first corinthians here that adam is is forever linked to christ first adam and last adam so we're going to diverge from this for a moment and we're going to wrap all this up here in a, in a little bit so how old is the earth We said earlier, it's about 6,000 years. We get 2,000 years when we read the Bible literally by adding up genealogies from Adam to Abraham. get about 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus, get about 2,000 years. And from Jesus to today, we get about 2,000 years, about 6,000 years. There's some great treatises out there. Um, Annals of the World by Archbishop Usher is a fantastic book. If you've got time to read a book about this thick, he goes through a nitty gritty detail, and he comes up with his not only year of 4004 BC, but comes up with an actual day and time he believes to be correct. <laughs> but unbelievable research, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about that either, but unbelievable amount of research he's done with biblical sources, you know, the Bible, as well as extra biblical sources and good historical accounts out there to come up with his date and to verify the date. What's really cool about the genealogies, just to understand some things about it, is there's some great charts out there, and it's, it's a little hard to see on this screen here, but when we have Adam, who lived to be 930 years old, if you draw a line down from the end of Adam's life, he was old enough that he could have directly spoken with Lamech, Noah's father. It's fascinating. And we go on further, that if we look at Shem, who is one of the three sons of Noah on the ark, that Shem lived long enough to know Abraham, or could have known Abraham, just by stacking the genealogies. In fact, to get from Adam to Moses... Who wrote the first five books of the Bible. You've only got to go through six different people to get there. Coming alive now, isn't it? Yet, while we have all of this from the one witness of creation, the one witness of origins, we then look at secular scientists that say, well, the universe is really 13 and a half billion years old, and then after a period of cooling, we had the earth develop. We had the earth develop, and that's about four and a half billion years old. And so we have a lot of professing Christians today that try to take these millions of years that they don't know how to combat, and they try to add them in somewhere into the Bible. So what they're trying to do is, again, not use the Bible to come up with millions of years. They're trying to take the millions of years from secular science and import it into the Bible. And they've got some problems here, because when our genealogical record gives 6,000 years from Adam on day six, all the way to today, there's not any places that you can stick millions of years in. And that's why they've come up with some different theories out there. The two most prominent ones being day-age theory and gap theory. Gap theory, you may have heard as ruin reconstruction. That's one of the terms they use. Lucifer's flood theory. Those are all very related, very close. So we're going to talk about how to combat these here. Day-age theory. This is the idea that if I would say, it took me a day to drive to wherever, to Utah, you would understand what I meant by the context of the word day. If I would say that back in my father's day, he had to walk uphill in his bare feet both ways to school, <laughs> you would understand that context, era time. If I said that I, I went to the park during the day, you'd understand that context, right? Same word, three different, three different meanings, but all based on the context of the sentence around the word. So let's look at the word yom which is usually translated day, but sometimes translated era of time. The word is used somewhere around 2,300 times in the Old Testament. What's interesting is the only place it's questioned is where? Genesis, of course. So when we understand the context of the word day, again, we understand what it means depending on the context of the sentence around it. When we look at Hebrew texts, the word yom means a 24-hour day when it appears with several things. The word morning, the word evening, and an ordinal number. There's a difference between ordinal and cardinal numbers, right? Ordinal is first or second or third. But we know that the word yom means a day when we see this. So how is it used in Genesis 1? Outside of Genesis 1, we see that day plus an ordinal number occurs 410 times. Evening and morning, the words evening and morning together without the word day occurs 38 times. The words evening and morning together with the word day occurs 23 times outside of Genesis 1. And night with day occurs 52 times. In each one of these instances, when we see this, guess what the word yom means? A literal 24-hour day. So now let's look at Genesis 1. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Okay. Genesis 1.8. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. So, what do we think God's trying to tell us? First day? Think it's a day. Second day? In case you don't understand, it, it's a day. Third day? In case you're a little thick in the head? it's a day. Fourth day? Fifth day? Sixth day? Like, what's your problem? This is a day, right? I think God made this very clear. And what's interesting is that when you have people that ask you, well, do you really know that in this instance it's still a 24-hour day? I love to ask this question to people. Okay, if you were God, how would you tell us if it was only a 24-hour day? Like, what, uh, what other modifiers could you possibly use than what we see here to clearly communicate it was a 24 hour day? Because I think God did a pretty clear job right here in telling us. And if that's not enough to convince you, I've had this conversation with, with numerous pastors over the last several years. I, I love to ask this question too. I'll ask a pastor, what is Exodus 20? Thankfully, most of them can tell me it's where the Ten Commandments are given, to Moses. And I say, that's correct. I say, you believe in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, don't you? And they say, yes. And I say, well, that's good because, you know, God did speak these to Moses and inscribed inscribed them himself in the stone tablets when he gave them to Moses. And they would say, yeah. And I'd say, that's wonderful. So in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, how would you deal with this? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it Holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Our work week six days and resting on the seventh is modeled after what? A literal creation week. It's hard to look, it's hard to be honest and look at Genesis and think that these are errors of time when God himself references creation week while he's giving Moses the Ten Commandments. I think it's very, very clear here. And so what we see is that when we take the days of creation being literal 24-hour days, and Adam being created on the sixth day. And then we can start adding up 6,000 years. From then, we get a 6,000-year-old earth. So then you had some people get really, really clever, and they came up with what's called the gap theory. And so the gap theory goes like this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. And then it says that, and the earth was without form and void, Genesis 1-2. And then they say, oh, we see a gap. So somewhere in here, God created, decided to destroy the creation, and then he recreated again, and that's why you see the earth was without form and void. Nowhere do we see this in scripture. Nowhere is this reference in scripture. In fact, when you look at the the, the Hebrew, what's called a vav consecutive, it shows that these Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 are, are linked together. This is not a, a new uh, story, so to speak. These, these go together, Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And you can read more about this if you want to get into the technical um, things on this, which is not a good thing to do uh, in a conference like this. I think this just reset. Um, you can go to Answers in Genesis' website, and they've got some wonderful articles that will explain this out really well. But the point is, is this, is that when you take a gap of millions of years and put it between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and you don't have Adam being created until later, what is going on in this gap of time? Well, you would have death, pain, disease, thorns, struggle, suffering, extinctions, all placed before what? Adam and Eve's sin. Major, major problem. I will tell you that if there's one thing that you get out of this entire talk this morning, it is this. Death is a result of sin. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. God did not use a bad thing Over millions of years, killing and killing and killing and killing and killing to finally get to human beings, depending on his creation. So whether you understand all the specifics of gap theory or even the day-age theory, just remember you can't have death before sin. We can't have a fossil record that is millions of years old, signifying millions of years of death and disease and suffering... That would have occurred before Adam and Eve's sin somewhere after 6,000 years ago. Having said all that, it's really fun to go to some of passages passage of the New Testament, right? So Jesus speaking in Mark 10, 6. Here he's asked about marriage. And how does Jesus... So I gave an entire talk on this at our conference in New Jersey a couple months ago. When we give apologetics, if we can't remember details, give Bible verses. Use the authority of God's word. And I think Jesus gave a wonderful example here. He was asked by the Pharisees about about marriage and divorce. And what did he do? He goes back and quotes from Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And he says here, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And then goes on. But the point here is, is this, if Adam and Eve were created on day six, so you got beginning of time, you got day six, and then you got 6,000 years, and Jesus says that Adam and Eve were created very near the beginning of creation, this would make a lot of sense. But if you have Adam and Eve being created, but before that, you have a time that goes way out there of billions to billions of years... Then you have Adam and Eve, and then you have 6,000 years. And Jesus said, from the beginning of creation, he made them, Adam and Eve, male and female. Does that make any sense here? No. It seems to contradict what what Christ has in his word. In Mark. We see in Mark 13, 19, that man's suffering started very near the beginning of creation. Again, this makes sense if Adam and Eve are placed very near the beginning. What about Luke 11, verses 50 to 51? Where it's indicated that Jesus placed Abel, who he calls the first to shed blood, very close to the beginning of creation. All these consistent with a literal interpretation of Genesis. And so as I said earlier, gap theory as well as um, any other theory out there like day age has to be wrong because they all put death before sin which we know from the Bible can't happen. The gap theory makes God's very good in Genesis 131 include death and destruction. So when God looked back at his creation, every day he says, and it was, it was good, right? And then at the, at the end, he says his creation is very good when he got done. This implies a perfect creation. Would he call it very good if he had millions of years of death, disease, suffering, we have a fossil record that is full of cancerous bones we see even in dinosaurs. Would that be considered very good? And so the reality is, is we can trust God's word. We can trust Genesis. I can't tell you how often times I walk into churches and I listen to, to people who say they believe God's word and then they make excuses for the being a Genesis. And, and I'll, I'll share one quick story here. I was speaking at a Lutheran church right by my home. I do a lot of filling in for pastors in, in my hometown. And uh, I go there once every three or four months and speak at the church. And I did one talk on creation versus evolution. At the end of, at the end of my talk, one of the um, older ladies of the church stood up during the Q&A and asked, well, don't you think God could have used evolution? And I said, no. She says, well, why not? I said, well, just like I said earlier, God said he made everything out to reproduce after its own kind. He didn't take a kind to another kind. She says, well, don't you think there could be errors or something's wrong in the Bible? Now, me, who's, you know, used to being on the streets and things just come out really quickly, I said, ma'am, are you saved? (laughs) Quickly looked back at the pastor and seemed okay. (laughs) But... But, <laughs> but I quickly changed the subject, and I said, look, here's the issue. If you are going to arbitrarily, arbitrarily look at any aspect of the Bible and say that this could be an error, then you can't take any part of it to be true. You have to question your own salvation, because you're, you're basing your salvation on the Bible being true in certain passages, and yet you're going to look at other passages and say it's not possibly true. Well, we've got a problem. And so this is why it's so important we get this right. Because I can tell you, I see people all the time who say they believe the Bible and then question Genesis, and you ask them further questions and talk to them a little bit. Because when we're on the streets, even if somebody says they're a Christian, I'm going to talk to them. The same way I hope they would talk to me, right? You want to know where they're coming from. And I can tell you, once you ask a few questions, you start finding out that, that something's off in their theology. Things are off. John MacArthur has said many times, tell me what someone believes about Genesis, and I will tell you what they believe about the rest of the Bible. I can tell you this is true. So we look at original sin. It ruined a perfect paradise. And because of that sin, all the bad things came into the world. And our very salvation depends on Jesus being real depends on Adam being real, who Jesus is linked to through the genealogies. We see in Romans 5, the first Adam and the last Adam. So without a literal creation, a literal Adam and Eve, literal original sin, literal physical death through sin, where's the need for a savior? One of the fun questions I like to ask, and I shouldn't even say fun because it's actually really, really heartbreaking, when I was doing the finishing touches on, on my book that came out about a year and a half ago, it's in the back, I was at a, a Starbucks. Now, I don't like to have Starbucks, but Starbucks is a great place to have conversations. Like, if you just set up, your, set up a MacBook and you wear a shirt, something about God on it, like, people will talk to you. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and... Uh, I was sitting down, and I'm doing some finishing touches on, on my book on the computer, and I'm listening to two guys to the table next to me who were speaking back and forth, and it sounded like one was discipling the other, and, and when they were getting ready to get up and go, I heard the one say, hey, I only got a few minutes left to get going. I decided to chime in, and I said, hey, guys, I couldn't help but overhear you talk, and it turns out that one was a pastor, and he was discipling a, a new believer, and uh and so I talked a little for a few minutes, and he goes, well, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, you know, I'm actually finishing my book on, on biblical creation and biblical uh, apologetics and, and presuppositional apologetics and, and how we use this in biblical evangelism. Yeah. And he goes, oh. Um, I go, do you, do you, uh, is there something you don't agree with? He goes, well, you know, I don't, I don't know how much I'd believe in a, in a young earth the way you might believe. And I, and I go... I'm sorry to hear that, Pastor. Um, I got a question for you. Why did Jesus have to die? Have you ever thought about this? I mean, okay, without something ridiculous, I mean, why didn't, why didn't Jesus just get put in a corner for timeout, Get the rod a few times. I mean, why death? Why? Because that was ascribed as the punishment of sin all the way back in the beginning. That's why. And so after the pastor stumbled and says, well, um, I, I don't understand your question. I said, okay, let me, let me just try it again. Um, why, did, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, he had to die, right? And he goes, um, I know you're trying to trick me here and all, but I go, pastor, I assure you I'm not trying to trick you. And then I gave him the answer I just gave to you. There's a disconnect, right? To understand the gospel, to understand his death on the cross and what it means to pay that penalty of sin and to rise from the dead, proving that not only he's human by human blood dropping, but he's also God that paid that penalty on the cross. We have to understand why it was death. And it goes back to the beginning. It goes back to Genesis. If we think that death occurred for millions to billions of years before Adam and Eve's sin, that death would somehow be a good thing that God used, why does he call the last enemy to be destroyed? Why did he have to conquer it on the cross? Through his death, burial, and resurrection. Again, Genesis is completely linked with the very gospel of which we are being saved. So as we finish up here, because you know I know Andrew's keeping time on me as he always does. I got just a few minutes left. <laughs> There's a great story to that. I'll probably let him tell you that later, and then I'll, and then I'll correct it after that. <laughs> so Original sin. Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. They cover themselves with fig leaves, right? The first, the first um, uh, showing of works-based righteousness, right? They cover themselves, and they quote-unquote hid from God. Now, here's another great linking here for you. Andrew, in talking about Romans one yesterday, said that everyone knows the true God that exists by His creation. And those who don't acknowledge him are suppressing the truth in their sin, right? And so I, I want you to have a picture of this, of, of what this suppression looks like. Because when, when, when we talk about suppression, this is an active force of suppression. I want you to think about on one of your beautiful beaches here or, or your swimming pools, stand in a swimming pool and take a beach ball and try holding it underwater. You have to forcibly hold this down. And the harder you push, the harder it, right? This is, an, this is active suppression that's going on. What did Adam actively do here? He hid. Before we were believers and we sinned, what did we do? We attempted to hide the exact same way. You know, we see this going again, all the way back to Genesis. Of course, God looked at their workspace righteousness and said, well, that's not good enough, because what did he do right after that? He made garments of skin, animal skin, for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And so we see the first animal sacrifice happen right there in the garden. And that animal sacrifice then set the standard for what we see in the entire Old Testament. All of which being a foreshadowing of what? The sacrificial lamb on the cross. Again, where is its foundation? Genesis. So you guys being out here in in California, you... You love um, movies, right? You love Hollywood, no? <laughs> All right, now be honest. How many people know the the uh, the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? Remember that game, right? <laughs> so, for those of you who don't know this this game, Kevin Bacon's been in a lot of movies as like a role, like a like a side role guy. And uh, the game used to go like this: they would say they would give an actor's name, and you would have to take that actor. And connect them to Kevin Bacon through movies. So you connect this actor to another actor who were in this movie together. And then this actor who is with this actor in this movie. And then this actor is in this actor. And you can always get to Kevin Bacon within six steps. It's wild, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, the game was that if you could do it in less steps than the other one, you win. The game. And uh, here's my challenge to you today. Think of any biblical doctrine... See how long it takes you to connect it to Genesis. And I think you're going to find you're going to do every one of them in one to two steps. You're going to beat Kevin Bacon. (laughs) So we've got two options for the history of death in this world as we close up here. When we don't take the Bible literally, we have creation, we have millions of years, then we would have Adam and Eve. And this presents the problem because sin is after Adam and Eve, but yet death would be put before Adam and Eve, would be put before their sin. I've I've repeated this now, I think, four times right now. It's an important concept. Therefore, what effect does the fall really have? Not so much. When we take the Bible at its word, we see six perfect days in creation. We see the fall from sin, and as a result, we see death. And we know that Christ... Conquers death in the end. Order of creation is a problem as well. In the Bible, we see that the earth was created before the stars. Evolutionists would say that stars came before the earth by many billions of years. The Bible says birds came before reptiles. Evolution says reptiles were before birds. In the Bible, the earth was made of water first, and then the dry land appeared. In evolution, it was once a fiery mass eventually cooled, and then water somehow appeared. In the Bible, we have land plants and then the sun, which would not be a problem because the sun was created on the fourth day pretty quickly, and there was already light present. We didn't need the sun for light because light was already there from the beginning. In Evolution says the sun would have been first, then many billions of years later, the earth and the land plants. And Obviously, in the Bible, it's man before death, and evolution says death leading to man. Evolution and the Bible are not compatible whatsoever. Billions of years, not compatible whatsoever. <clears throat> but we still have some guys that say, well, what about plants? Because if Adam and Eve and the animals are eating plants, well, then you're killing plants and they're dying, right? Not so fast. <laughs> See, there's a word called nefesh that is used to describe what it's like the living breath, what people and animals have. It was not ascribed to plants. Plants are said that they, they say they wither, that they don't actually die in the Bible, not in the same sense. So we aren't killing plants when we eat them, unlike some of the vegans that are out here in uh, California. Because everything starts here, guys, and then it it comes across the country and comes to us in Ohio, (laughs) and then we know we can blame you from two years earlier. (laughs) Plants do not scream when you eat them, but you're not hearing the cauliflower yell <laughs> when you're chewing in them. <laughs> it is ridiculous. <laughs> but um, this I think is the most important part here, and, and we're gonna explore this a little bit further in, in my second talk. Is when you compromise with millions of years, when you put death before sin. When you say that death was used by God to create everything we see today, all the way up to the pinnacle of his creation, us human beings, how do you explain tragedy? Because if you put death on God, and you say that he is the author of death, then all the death and the suffering in this world would be whose fault? God's. Instead, we know that that's not true. What does the Bible say? Death and suffering is our fault. Very, very important distinction here. So, on that, I thank you. Um, we are here the rest of the day today. We'll be here all day tomorrow. Um, Andrew will be coming up next to speak about, um, uh, about um, Bible and Bible texts and their authenticity. And I'll be talking about, after that, and finishing up a conference with how to answer all those objections that you will hear on the street or from family members or friends. And so we're going to go over over those things today. I want you to know that we, as Striving for Eternity, are here to help. And just because when we leave here does not mean you cannot reach out to us. Pastor Steve is our contact info. We have it on the back. If you guys have any questions at any point, call us, email us. We are happy to help in anything we can possibly help you guys with going forward. So our hearts are about equipping and teaching and for you guys to be sent out. And go and do this. This evangelism is not for the specially called. There's No, everybody is specially called. <laughs> everybody. And so we want to equip, and that's where our hearts are, is, is we're here for you guys. So please... Y- I know that a lot of speakers at conferences don't want to be bothered. That is not us. We want to be bothered. Please, come bother us. Come talk to us. Come ask us questions. That's what we're here for the next couple of days. I'm going to go over a couple of books real quick. So I'm going to start with mine because I, I really, it's shiny. His aren't shiny. <laughs> His are a matte finish. So, <laughs> So, you know... On the Origin of Species, Darwin's book. I decided to rip off Darwin. On the Origin of Kinds. Um, These are the actual finch drawings of Charles Darwin. And, um, you know, I wanted atheists to be able to pick up this book and get tricked and start reading it. But, uh, you know, one of the things we wanted to do in this book is we wanted to be able to give you an answer to every question that you could possibly get. We know that the number one reason why people don't evangelize, Christians don't evangelize, is because they are afraid of the questions or challenges that they will be asked. It's why we're going to go over a number of them today, but they are in this book. We mix together biblical evangelism, presuppositional apologetics. We'll go into a lot more detail than what Andrew was even able to cover yesterday. He did a marvelous job yesterday. You're going to get a lot more of the underpinnings of it in this book, um, as well as how to answer those most frequently asked questions. If you master what's in this book, you will have nothing to worry about. You can talk to the layman or a PhD scientist the exact same way. It is remarkable, and I'll teach you some of those things today. Um, Again, all at a lay level. I know presuppositional apologetics sounds difficult. We took a long time to break this down into very simple concepts for all of us to use. What Do They Believe is Pastor Andrew's first book. There's Kingdom of the Cults out there. It's a fantastic, fantastic book. What Andrew does is he goes through their own documents, their own sources, and shows you what they believe. There's nothing out there like it. It is a fantastic resource in understanding some of the apologetics of where these false religions come from. And then what do we believe is, again, you can read Wayne Grudem or you can read Andrew Rappaport. (laughs) This you can get done with. (laughs) Very, very easy book, and I encourage you to look at that. Um, I also encourage you to sign up for our free newsletter in the back um, so you can keep an eye on what's going on and some of the new things with Striving for Eternity. On that, I thank you. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org.